You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have Dr. Karen Lee. Uh, she works Hello. at NYU Langone. Is it, is it pronounced Langone or Langone or Langone? Langone, okay. Mm-hmm. And uh, she works with, uh, helps people with sleep disorders. So, Karen, thanks for coming. Sure, happy to be here. Yeah. So, you know, I've spoken to a number of uh, sleep professionals. Um, they usually have a personal story on why sleep is important to them. So, you know, if you don't mind sharing, what's yours? Yeah. I mean, basically my background is as a neurologist. And when I was doing my neurology training, I rotated uh, through sleep medicine and I just found it really fascinating because most of us think of sleep as just a process where everything kind of shuts down and everything is off. And it's not that way at all. Um, When we're asleep, there's just as many things going on, right? Then when we're awake, it's just different processes that are occurring. So that was really fascinating to me from like a neurological perspective. And then the different disorders um, that exist in the sleep sphere are really interesting as well. And I like that everybody can talk about sleep. Everyone can relate with sleep um, at all ages. And a lot of people have disorders that they're not aware of, and it's very treatable. And that struck me as really interesting that, you know, we all sleep, but most people don't even understand sleep in general or why we sleep. Um, or understand the disorders. And I found when I was working in sleep clinics, you know, rotating through there as a neurologist, that my outcomes were really good in, in sleep clinic. And that's what I really enjoyed. You could really see improvement in patients. People are coming in happy um, when we're improving their different sleep disorders. And that was really immediately rewarding. Um, and I have some sleep disorders myself, like I have restless leg syndrome, you know, I have I have different disorders too that I empathize with a lot of patients and I can, I can understand what they're going through. Um, and the majority of my patient has sleep apnea and they require the machine CPAP and all that. And so I've been exposed to a lot of it and seen how much it can really improve people's lives. And yeah. what's interesting to me is I practice as both a neurologist. I also see some general neurology can still, um, but mostly sleep and you know, whenever I go to a dinner party, oh, you know, you're a physician, what do you do? I say, oh, I do neurology and sleep. I mean, no one really cares about the neurology, except for the headache part, because I also see a lot of migraine. But people are just like in line out the door to talk about sleep, right? It's something that 
all of us are really interested in and that I can really help people with. So that's been kind of my journey through it. So when, when people come to you for sleep problems, what are they saying? What, you know, is it, have they been having problems for years and they're desperate and they finally can't take it anymore? Or what's, what's like a common narrative you get? Yeah. Um, so, so I do see adult and pediatrics for their adults. Uh, majority of the time they are struggling symptoms and they've, you know, brought it up multiple times and it hasn't been addressed enough or been addressed appropriately. I'm often going to just the primary care physicians. They don't know, they're not trained enough to know about sleep and often other physicians just don't know about sleep in general. And medical school or training doesn't touch upon it much at all. And that's why so many residents and fellows and medical students that um, that I train or that shadow with me say, wow, you know, I know any of this. So patients are just jumping from, you know, provider to provider, talking to people out there, and they don't really know where to be sent for some of their complaints. Um, a lot of patients do, though, are told, you know, you need to go to the sleep doctor, you have snoring or symptoms like that. And a lot of people try to you know, push it off, or they don't understand uh, how different sleep disorders can be can be dangerous for their life. And so, so they come in, and once I provide education, then they say, "Oh my goodness!" I mean, the common narrative I hear is, "Oh my gosh, I wish I knew this 20 years ago." Right? Um, there's just a lot of people aren't educated, and other doctors aren't either to tell them how important it is to come in. So, and then I have you know some other patients that suddenly start experiencing symptoms um, like new insomnia or issues like that that come in. Um, but for the most part, they've been struggling for, for a little while. So you get mostly sleep apnea or is restless leg common or insomnia? Or like what are the, uh, what are the, what's yeah. the problem that ends up being diagnosed and what are the symptoms of it? Yeah. So the most common disorders uh, by far uh, get referrals for our sleep apnea. Um, second to that is insomnia. Um, and then because I'm a neurologist, I get a lot of the other other sleep disorders that maybe sleep doctors from a pulmonary background or a nurse and throat background wouldn't get. So I get a lot of the movement disorders like restless leg syndrome or periodic limb movements of sleep. And I get the different parasomnias, so um, activity during sleep that you shouldn't have, like sleepwalking, sleep talking, night terrors, acting out your dreams in your sleep. Um, I also see a lot of the hypersomnia disorders, like the sleepiness disorders that are um, really entrenched in, in neurology, like hypersomnia disorders, like narcolepsy, idiopathic hypersomnia. Um, yeah, so I see a, a, a wider variety than typical sleep specialists because of my uh, background in neurology, and that um, affects my referral pattern, too, because I'm a neurologist. Okay. Um, you know, I've spoken to a number of people about sleep apnea, but not much about restless leg, for instance. So what um, what are the symptoms of restless leg syndrome and how does it affect it? Yeah. So restless leg syndrome, first of all, is a really difficult diagnosis, not because it's so hard to diagnose, but because it's hard to describe. And so many people don't talk about it um, and they can't find the words to describe it well. But basically, it's a clinical diagnosis, meaning you diagnose someone just by having a conversation with them and understanding their symptoms. And it's a discomfort in the legs and sometimes the arms or other parts of the body. Um, it's, it's felt as like a restless sensation, uh, a tingling or prickly feeling or a stressing sensation or a soreness sensation. So there's all types of presentations of it. Um, and it usually happens when you get in bed at night and you're sedentary or when you're about, you're watching TV in the evening and about to get in bed. Or it can happen when you're sitting during the daytime for extended periods of time, like at the opera, on an airplane, on a bus. And part of the diagnostic criteria is you have this 
uncomfortable sensation. And when you move your legs or massage them or stretch them or do some type of maneuver so they're not just sitting there stationary, you get relief. The movement or distraction walking provides relief. Now, unfortunately, often that relief is often just temporary. And then once you stop moving, it comes back. And restless leg syndrome is a disorder when it bothers you about three times per week or more. Um, there's also intermittent restless leg, syndrome, restless leg syndrome that happens less frequently than that, just episodic, like on a long airplane trip or on the train or something like that. And RLS in and of itself is not something dangerous. We just care about it because it's a really common cause of difficulty falling asleep, waking you up throughout the night. It's really involved with insomnia. And I see it in the pediatric population uh, as well. And that's tricky because a lot of times children don't have the words or sometimes they haven't even developed language yet to express that the legs are bothering them, right? Um, but they have disturbed sleep and the parents bring them in because they have disturbed sleep. So, yeah. What do you, what do you think causes uh, restless leg syndrome? Like, when the person's sleeping, is their leg jumping all over the place or what's happening to them? No. So that's, so you bring up a good point because that there's a big distinction in that. And often patients feel and they think that the legs jumping around, they say on their own is restless leg syndrome. So there's something called restless leg syndrome and there's a separate disease called periodic disorder. And you can't have both of them. You have one or the other. Now there's a term called periodic limb movement and periodic limb movement is when you're legs involuntarily like twitch around okay and that can happen when you're awake when you're like transitioning into sleep or you're feeling drowsy or it can happen in your sleep where your legs jumps a little um, and it can wake you up from sleep so about 80 percent of the time patients with restless leg syndrome also have periodic limb movement so there's a distinction restless leg syndrome people feel uncomfortable a restlessness on their legs so they voluntarily move them now oftentimes patients with rls also morbid periodic limb movements where the legs move around on their own. So RLS with PLMs is common. If you don't have RLS, but the legs move around on their own, and by the way, we measure this with sleep studies, the legs twitching around while you're asleep, then you have periodic limb movement disorder. And it's an important distinction to make what disease you have because our treatment, you know, medications are different options, basically. So there's that distinction that I always have to clarify with patients between involuntary leg movements and, and patients moving them voluntarily on their own to get relief. Hmm. Okay. What, what kinds of treatments are there for people and what do they experience if successful? Yeah. So you had asked the question, it kind of has to do with like the pathophysiology of what's going on. And what's interesting that we found is that RLS is closely related to ferritin levels. So ferritin is the storage form of iron. So it's not the iron level you get when you get your blood collected. It's the ferritin level. And we have found that low ferritin levels, less than 75, are highly associated with RLS. Also, anemia is associated with RLS. And our understanding, and we're still doing active research on this, is that there is dysfunction of the way dopamine uh, is working in the brain, um, and that's what is contributing to RLS symptoms. And we understand that because dopamine, um, sorry, ferritin is a cofactor in the reaction uh, to develop dopamine in the brain. So because we understand all of this, actually the medications, usually the first line, are dopamine agonists, so medications that augment dopamine, and they really improve uh, restless leg syndrome symptoms. And then there are a few other classes um, of medications also, alpha-2 cal calcium um, channel ligand medications, like those are often called Neurontin or Gabapentin. Um, that class of medications can help as well. 
So, so far, what we understand is some type of dopaminergic central nervous system dysfunction that's contributing to this. And that's why we also see PLMs like periodic limits, um respond to this dopaminergic medication. Okay. And when the when the person does respond, they just report sleeping better or what do they report? Yeah, they report they can get in bed and their legs don't bother them. Their legs don't wake them up from bothering them. So they have much better quality of sleep. When you have much better quality of sleep, you feel better during the day as well. Okay, excellent. Mm-hmm. And then for apnea, um, your go-to is the uh, CPAP or do you use oral appliances or you know tongue shocking devices like the hypoglossal mm-hmm. nerve stimulator? Or what, what do you use so and what, what have you found in the practice? Yeah, so there's all types of treatments for sleep apnea, and it's really individualized based on your situation. Um, so the way I like to explain it to patients, once I go over their sleep study with them, I tell them there are two buckets of reasons of why we decide to treat sleep apnea and how aggressive we decide to treat that. So one bucket of reasons is, does your sleep apnea cause a risk for other chronic diseases like cardiovascular risk factors, you know, mainly stroke, heart attack, high blood pressure, et cetera. And I look at the results of the sleep study to decide that. Um, One of the biggest things I look at is something called an oxygen desaturation index. So if I see a person desaturates by 3% or more, uh, greater than 10 to 15 times per hour of sleep, we know that's a risk factor for developing cardiovascular issues in the future if this goes untreated. So that's one of the things we address, you know, if the patient decides if they want to pursue treatment or not. Then the other thing we address is symptoms. So what's interesting is your degree of sleep apnea doesn't necessarily dictate your degree of symptoms. So I could have a person that chokes 100 times per hour, meaning they have like 100 apneas per hour during sleep, and they have no symptoms. Maybe they just snore a little. Versus a patient that has apneas 10 times per hour of sleep and is just completely debilitated and can't even drive in the car and can't stay awake, mm. right? So your degree of symptoms is really is really personalized. So I review that, you know, in detail with the patient to get a better feel for them. Look, is this a risk factor for other conditions? And are there symptoms that you have that are treatable that we need to go after? And then when we make that decision together, then we decide what treatments are necessary and 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 how appropriate and how drastic we need to be. So on the milder spectrum, if the patient has only something called positional sleep apnea, meaning when we do the sleep study only flat on their back, they have sleep apnea. But when they're not on their back, they don't have sleep apnea. We can just do positional treatment. We can use techniques like having them sleep on a wedge pillow so that the head of the bed is elevated and they're not flat on their back. So a tennis ball in the back of the shirt, they never sleep on their back, right? So there are different techniques um, like that for positional therapy. Also, if the patient is significantly obese and it looks like their airway closure is because of that, then, you know, we talk about weight loss in patients. Um, If patients, if their anatomy is such where they could benefit from an oral appliance, so an oral appliance is where you, you take someone's mold, you put it in their upper and lower jaw. You wear it at night when you're sleeping, and you slowly, with a sleep dentist, jet the lower jaw forward. So all that does is it opens up the airway, you know, kind of behind the tongue. But if your airway is collapsing in other areas, in the nose, other areas of the upper airway, then it's not going to do anything for you, right? So it's only ideal in certain patients and patients with milder forms of sleep apnea. Um, The gold standard of treatment for sleep apnea is the CPAP device. And there's different forms of the CPAP. There's BiPAP, auto BiPAP, auto CPAP, all all different types of devices. Now, these devices work always or or most of the time 
for sleep apnea because the way it works is it blows open the entire upper airway from top to bottom. So it doesn't matter how many areas are obstructing, you're going to open all of those simultaneously. So that is the gold standard of treatment. Now, in some patients that absolutely can't tolerate CPAP device or they are unable to understand how to use it, they have Alzheimer's disease, they, they live in a nursing home, right? Someone can't put on and take off the device all the time. Sometimes these people are candidates for a hypoglossal nerve stimulator. And that's what you're kind of referring to, where we put uh, a device in the chest, under the chest, kind of like a pacemaker and ground it. And we shock the hypoglossal nerve. And that's a nerve that's connected to the tongue. And what that does with each breath is it just forwards someone's tongue. So it opens up the size of the, of the back of the airway so it's not collapsing there. So that's also only optimal for people that are collapsing in a certain location. So people with certain anatomical obstructions would respond to that potentially. But the outcomes of those studies are very mixed, and they don't give you necessarily across the board the same consistent benefit as CPAP or BiPAP, right? So the surgeons think about implanting this when patients first try have to fail CPAP or BiPAP. So, you know, I've heard of being, I've heard of people going for a sleep study and then being recommended a, you know, a CPAP device, et cetera. But it sounds like a, an airway evaluation is needed you know, to look at the physiology and the morphology of the person in a whole yeah. bunch of areas, you know, their nose, their part, throat, everything. Yeah. Before part they of my, a CPAP on them. Exactly. Because it's all about, sleep apnea is all about um, structure. It's a structural disease. It's an upper airway anatomical structural disease. That's what people fail to remember sometimes, right? So you have to look at like what's causing each patient. It's different from each patient. So in children, the most common reason is tonsils or adenoid, right? You pull those out and often the sleep apnea goes away, right? Um, not all the case in all them, but that's the common reason. In adults, the obstructions are, are often more complex than on site. So when I initially see a patient, I always examine them, you know, to look at their airway, to look at their tonsils, to look how narrow things are, to look at their nose, see if there's a septal deviation, is it inflamed, do they have turbinates? Do the valves, like the nostrils collapse easily when they breathe in? You know, so the examination is, is paramount in the beginning, uh, the sleep evaluation. And then sometimes I do send them to surgeons based on, you know, different things we see. Um, but, you, but you kind of bring up an interesting point um, that um, something evolving in the world of sleep medicine is we understand it's because of obstructions in different parts of your upper airway, right, that lead to difficulty breathing when you're sleeping. So the question right. is, well, if we want to go after this with surgery and understand the sites of obstruction, how do we better understand the sites of obstruction? Well, we have a problem with this. If you want to see what's obstructing when someone's sleeping, when you put the camera in them to look down their airway, they don't stay asleep, right? They obviously wake up. So it's hard to mm. see in the real world what's happening with that, right? So the best thing can do these is a drug-induced sleep endoscopy. It's called DICE. So what we do is we put patients under anesthesia, and then we go in with the camera and look at their airway collapse. Now, understand this is not the same as natural sleep in any way because we don't give people anesthesia and make them collapse more and differently than we do when we sleep naturally. So we're not looking at what truly happens when someone sleeps, but it gives us a better estimate. And surgeons will do this. We do this here at NYU to get a better feel of where the obstructions are and where they should go after for surgery. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, right? If someone um, has been anesthetized, their tissues relax differently than when they sleep? Yes. And I mean, and this is why people need pre-op clearance before surgery. And, and, and so it was checked, do they have sleep apnea is a big issue why I have to see patients. Because when you put people under anesthesia, 
you know, it relaxes the muscles a lot more and people are going to collapse a lot more. Alarms are going to go off. People are going to desaturate, right? And, and anesthesia and everyone's going to be freaking out what's going on with this patient, right? So this is a big part of preoperative clearance before surgeries is knowing does someone have sleep apnea or not and for everyone to be prepared. Well, if they do, the airway might collapse a lot more because of all the anesthesia we're giving them and we have to be prepared for this. Has anyone developed a model based on the placement and the density of the muscle tissue? the age, the weight, you know, an initial scan while the person's awake to model how they would collapse and to what degree. And we try, to, that we, try to, we try to look at this. There's something called CINE MRI that are looking at this while you're sleeping in the MRI scanner and, and, and visually looking at this and combining it with uh, drug-induced sleep endoscopy. Yes, these are hot topics that are, that are happening right now. And usually the, uh, the CINE MRI are more in children with different congenital malformations, and we have to do very extreme surgeries, you know, jaw misalignments and people with cleft palate and developmental issues um, where you know you have to go in for surgery and you want to optimize where to go in. So, yeah, that's technology that's constantly evolving. You know, it's weird. I don't know if this makes sense at all, but in a CT scan, sometimes you're asked to hold your breath in a sad, mm-hmm. perverse way. Maybe the apnea would yeah. lend itself to a CT because the person stops breathing. You know, and if they're not moving, then maybe you can get a good CT image quickly. That That's different than what happens during sleep. Mm. That's the thing is, is there's this different state that you're in sleep. Things happen differently when we're awake. Um, the muscles, this is one of the biggest problems and one of the predisposing factors for sleep apnea is, um, I talk to patients that regularly, is one of the reasons for obstructive sleep apnea is you're, if you're born with a smaller airway than other people's, then when it collapses, it's going to collapse more than other people. And this airway is lined by muscle and fat. And some people's muscles, for unclear reasons, collapse more than other people's when they go to sleep, mm-hmm. right? So that's yeah. very different patient to patient. And this is, there's this complicated airway and the physics of this airway and all this, which is really complex that we're, that mm-hmm. we're still actively researching. What about in the uh, different stages of sleep? I would think that the collapse would be just like someone under anesthesia collapses yeah. differently from non-anesthesia. I would think that the stages of sleep, the nature of your apnea changes. Are there people that yeah. have it only in deep sleep and not in REM or vice versa? Or different yeah, or? that's actually a really good question and a good point. We talk about this. This is like a hot topic at our like annual sleep conferences too and stuff. So basically in our sleep, we go through non-REM and REM sleep, right? REM stands for dream sleep. So we cycle through a non-REM REM cycle is about nine minutes. And we cycle through about four to five of these throughout the night. And our REM periods get longer as the night goes on. We dream more, you know, in the later uh, end of our sleep cycles. And so in REM sleep, what happens actually is we have a protective mechanism. Because if we were acting out our dream physically in bed, it would be like a disaster. We'd be flying around the room, kicking the soccer ball, fighting with our bed partner, right? So we have this actual brake pad mechanism in our brain that paralyzes all of our muscles. So when we're dreaming, all of our muscles are paralyzed except for our diaphragm. Um, So because of that, when people are in REM sleep, if they have sleep apnea and all the muscles are paralyzed, it brings out the apneic events more. So we clearly see in sleep studies when patients are flat on their back because that collapses your airway more, and when they're in REM sleep, that sleep apnea is often more severe. And to that point, you can see patients that don't have sleep apnea in other stages of sleep, but in REM sleep, they have it. So just REM-related sleep apnea. And we do not yet have a standard way of treating that. What, 
like insurance doesn't approve just treatment of REM-related sleep apnea, although we all know that this is a phenomenon, right? So overall, when we decide to treat sleep apnea, we're going off all the events throughout the night. Um, we look at a score called an apnea hypopnea index, and we can break that up into different positions, different phases of sleep, but we're just basically looking at the average overall, how many times you have an apnea per hour. But yes, it's, it's different in REM sleep than non-REM sleep. Do, uh, do current CPAPs uh, accommodate this? Do they monitor the pressure and get feedback and change the pressure depending on the cycle of sleep the person's in or of the, not, you know? Not depending on the cycle of sleep, just in general. Um, they're auto, auto devices, right? I have auto CPAP, auto BiPAP. So these devices basically are sensing, uh, they're doing little, they're, if you will, trying to do little sleep studies on you throughout the night. So they can sense when the airway is obstructing more, they give you higher pressures. This is breath to breath. When they feel you're not obstructing as much, they give you lower pressures. So when I prescribe the devices to my patients, I prescribe a range on their device. And then the device does its own job. And then the purpose, one of the big purpose of the follow-up appointments is I download you know, the information off their device and I look within that range where they're hitting. So are they hitting their ceiling 95% of the time? Are they hitting the floor 95% of the time? What is the patient telling me? Do they feel that the pressure is too high and they're usually hitting the ceiling? Are they leaking everywhere? Like all these things are measured on your CPAP device. How many hours you work, how much you leak, how many events per hour you struggle to breathe, what pressures are you requiring? And actually these days it's so modern, all of it stays on a modem and into a cloud. So I can see from my office everything that a patient's doing, and I can adjust the pressures from my office, and it changes on their device anywhere they are in the world. It's all remotely controlled now. And patients have apps and have the ability to look at their information as well. So this has really changed the face of sleep apnea treatment and compliance. Because, um, for example, our sleep clinics are extremely busy, right? My wait was like three to four months. So if I set up a patient with device and they're just struggling with it, and they say, okay, I need an appointment you know, sooner because I'm struggling with my device, historically, we would say, okay, you know, you can't come in here for months to get a change of your device, right? I mean, that's unacceptable for patients that are just struggling, you know, trying to get used to the device. So my patients message me, you know, I look at their data, I change it on the cloud, and it changed at their home. So it allows for emergency adjustment of, a, of pressures between face-to-face follow-up appointments. Why would you need to do that, though, if uh, it's auto-titrating or if it changes the pressure as the person needs it? Because the auto-titrating part is smart, but it's not that smart. Because if it was that smart, we would, which some people do when it didn't work, they would set everyone from 4 to 20. The lowest pressure is 4, the highest is 20 in a lot of devices, and let it do its job. But the device doesn't do the best job. It still needs the molding from the provider to help. Because sometimes it will still overshoot, undershoot. And some patients, we need to... Uh, focus on a more ideal pressure. And the information the device spits out is not a replacement for a sleep study. So the machine may say all their events have been controlled per hour of sleep when I look at the download. But if a patient comes into my office and the download says, oh, everything looks great, but they tell me, doc, I, I still am choking or snoring. I still feel tired. Then I don't completely trust that download. Because I'll bring the patient into the lab and I'll see that the pressures aren't adequate or they're too high, whichever. So we have to use numbers that device gives us clinical information from the patient and put it all together to figure out the changes. Otherwise, we just have like machines that are robots and we would cut me out, you know, and that doesn't work for patients. And unfortunately, this device is sophisticated. So if the pressure is too high, 
will that pull the person out of a deeper level of sleep because it'll blow too hard into them and they'll go and they'll kind of awaken and maybe not know it and that ruins their sleep quality you know where pressure's not high enough will the same thing happen is that why yeah so it gets a little more it can get a little more complicated than that but like for example if the pressure's too high besides it causing frank discomfort for the patient and they don't need it that high and they can't even fall asleep let's say that, or it's leaking everywhere. So you don't want it higher than it needs to be for a patient because that can just be uncomfortable. That's one thing. The other thing is what you were saying, it could be causing arousal, but patients aren't even aware of what's disturbing their quality of sleep. The other thing is it could, what the machine can cause if the presses are too high or something called uh, treatment emergent central apneas, which is, it's complicated to explain, but it's basically so high that the person is not triggering taking their own breath. And so the higher pressures are working against them and causing them to have more events where they don't breathe. So there are issues when the pressures are too high, right? So we have to follow those things regularly. And then, of course, if they're too low, like you were saying, they'd have apneas and all that. Like, it's like, you know, inadequate treatment. What about the uh, the profile of the air? Like, you know, if a, if a person is supposed to breathe 12 times an hour, does the machine mm-hmm. just continue to blow air into their mouth? Does it stop when they're going to exhale? And it, senses oh, it senses all that. The of the it, senses all. it does sense that. Yep, it senses all that. So you, when you talk to people on the device, um, it syncs with their breathing nice. And each generation of new device syncs better with patients. But it gets a lot more complicated where some patients, because of certain type of central apnea, different types of apnea they have than typical obstructive apnea, um, we, we have much more sophisticated devices, like some devices that they sense the patient's not taking a breath, so it hitches in a breath. We call it adding a backup rate. Um, and so there are really advanced devices out there that will assist with breathing too if it, if it senses the patient's not taking a breath. How does it assist with breathing? How does that work? So it, so it, it pushes it, it pushes the pressure in to force the patient to take a breath. It's, okay. it's, it's a, a backup breath that it gives the patient that triggers them to start breathing again, basically, because the patient's just sitting there not breathing. It's, that's, that's a form of central sleep apnea. What about the um, the profile of the air? Let's say um, the machine will blow into you for, uh, I don't know, three and a half seconds. Does it blow harder in the beginning and then softer as you get through the inhalation or vice versa? Like, are there profiles to the air pressure that help? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So most people don't need a lot of calculatory time, the rise time, how fast it raises. Most people don't need that level of sophistication unless they have complicated like pulmonary issues. Um, but yes, we have devices that do that. Um, the difference between a CPAP and a BiPAP, you may have heard those terms before, is, is touching on that idea. So basically, when you have a CPAP device, if we take away the auto idea, right, you have an auto CPAP, right? The auto is it's adjusting throughout the night based on your needs, right? But breath to breath, inhalation versus exhalation. Let's talk about that. In a CPAP, when you inhale, let's say the CPAP is set to 10 as one of the values it's getting. You inhale, you get 10 centimeters of water pressure. You exhale, you get 10 centimeters of water pressure. In a BiPAP, if you inhale, you get 10 centimeters of water pressure. When you exhale, for example, you get four. So when you exhale, the pressure is not pushing in against you as hard, which is, by the way, much more comfortable for everyone. So a lot of people that don't tolerate CPAP end up tolerating BiPAP. Right. These are the patients that come to me that, quote, tried CPAP, failed it before. It was too uncomfortable. We switch them to a BiPAP device. It's much more comfortable and they do well on that. It's something very common that happens. BiPAP devices are much more expensive, sophisticated, more difficult to be covered by insurance. 
So yes, we could give everyone a BiPAP device in the beginning, but insurance is not going to cover that. Patients have to qualify for that. And actual reason why BiPAP devices were initially used is for patients with chest wall issues like myotonic dystrophy that don't have the strength to move their chest wall or, or COPD, emphysema. And what the idea of the BiPAP does is it helps patients breathe in in a more natural way easier because a higher pressure in, lower pressure when you exhale, that helps move the chest wall. That's why BiPAP, that's, that's used in the inpatient hospital setting all the time. Um, but we can incorporate that into a non-invasive ventilation system on an outpatient basis. And so, yeah, that's, right. that's how a BiPAP works. Mm-hmm. So, for example... Um, I can see, yeah, I can see why it's so complicated because, you know, even a normal breath, I, I don't breathe in like... I don't breathe in in like these, you know, like these specific chunks. I, I, I would guess that as I breathe in, the pressure is, I don't know, whatever, 10 centimeters, and then it changes down to eight halfway through the breath, and maybe it goes down to six by the time I finish the breath. And, you know, mm-hmm. depending on how my lung fills up and the resistance as the air enters me, that changes. And I mean, the, mm-hmm. you know, the, my throat's changing. And all. It seems like, I, I don't know, like even modeling how the pressure changes over the course of a normal inspiratory breath is complicated, I guess, and can be uh, adapted to. And it does it. Yeah. The device does it well. Cause that, I mean, I see how many patients say that say, this is great. Um, I don't notice it anymore. It helps me breathe easier. A lot of patients find it's breathing easier Mm -hmm. for me. It's allowing me to inhale all the way easier because it's doing it for me. I'm taking fuller breaths when I'm sleeping. Um, it's not everything out there where people say, oh, these devices are so horrible and all that, right? Like a lot of patients from the beginning say, you know, I, I find this, you know, relaxing, this can breathe easier, right? So, and, and ultimately, I mean, I, I talk to the patients about this on a regular basis because they have the idea, how can I use that machine? It's going to make my sleep worse. It really makes people sleep better. I mean, that's why our sleep clinics are so busy. Our sleep clinics are so yeah. busy because people are using these devices and they're not using it because they're crazy and a doctor said to use it and they don't want to use it. They use it because it changes their life, right? They use it right. because it really helps them. I don't, I don't have to convince patients to take an on vacation. They want to take an on vacation because they don't want to feel exhausted and horrible when they're on vacation. So they take their machine mm-hmm. with them, right? So, so once patients mm-hmm. feel better, then you don't have to convince them to the machine or once they've acclimated, then they, they, they keep using it. So why do so many people reject CPAPs? Where, where is the, you know, as if you don't get them in the first week of using it, then they say, how the hell with this? Or like, where, where do people fall yeah. down with these things? There are so many factors to this. So one thing I have noticed is if the patient is following in a sleep practice, where pretty much all you do is sleep, their chances of success are so much higher because they're getting so much more specialized care for the different needs they have, right? We have our own technicians here um, doing mask fit appointments for patients to find them better masks right? I'm regularly downloading their data and making adjustments. We have our own sleep lab. We're doing repeat sleep studies, switching the devices, switching the settings, you know, like really getting to the bottom of basically anytime the patient brings up an issue of discomfort, it has to be addressed. And that doesn't happen often when someone's not following in a sleep clinic, right? The patient tells me they have dry mouth. Okay, let's work on the humidity and temperature. The patient is mouth breathing. Let's work on a chin strap or change the mask. The pressures feel too high or too low. Let's work on right. There has to be a solution for each issue that they encounter, and there are so many issues that patients encounter that I can't just tell them, "Hey, these are all the issues." Like it, it's it's personalized patient to patient, right? And so, <clears throat> if a patient is being prescribed, and this is what unfortunately happens, is any doctor prescribes a device, 
So if a patient is being prescribed a device by a doctor, let's say a primary care physician, that's not a board-certified speech specialist, prescribes CPAP, has no idea how to set the device, has no idea how to monitor. They don't even know how to monitor a device. They don't even know that the device needs to be monitored for regular downloads, by the way. They don't know how to refill the equipment. They don't know how to work with a supplier company. I mean, these patients are doomed for failure, right? And mm. if they make through on their own, figuring out how to deal with it on their own, they come to me years later and they say, oh, I've never even changed my mask, gosh, right? I've never even, and they have a super outdated device. The pressures aren't adequate for sleep apnea worsens as we age, the airway collapses more, right? So, so patients don't even know they need to be regularly monitored. So there's been some changes that have happened that have helped a bit with this. For example, the supplier companies. Uh, which give the refills of all the equipment. They're basically paid by patients' insurance companies. They won't keep refilling equipment for patients if they don't see a doctor, you know, a sleep doctor regularly to check up and make sure everything's adequate to prescribe the equipment and all that. So patients will come to me say, saying, I just need refills of equipment. And they had never seen a sleep doctor before, right? But at least, And I teach them all this stuff and they didn't know anything because no one told them any of this right? None of it was being regulated, right? Um, so that's one of the big reasons. Another one of the big reasons is even in a coordinated subspecialty sleep clinic, the issues that we have to deal with, with insurance and supplier companies is so outrageous and so difficult to manage that that affects care for people, right? I, every day patients complain to me, I can't get through to the supplier company. I have a question. I can't get a hold of them. You know, they're billing me incorrectly. Like there's all these issues with these supplier companies, but they don't understand. We have nothing to do with the supplier company. You're telling like the wrong person. Like I don't have any control over the supplier company. It's like me working with a pharmacist and the pharmacy is horrible and that's affecting well, outcomes, but... right? Get their meds or anything, but the patients blame us right? And that's difficult. And, and we're dealing with mm -hmm. insurance with another barrier. Insurance is getting horrible and more and more difficult to approve in lab sleep studies, to approve equipment and all that. There is only, only so much money in the system, right? So insurance mm -hmm. is making it so hard to get the devices approved. So if a patient doesn't see the correct doctor to get the right notes written and the insurance company gets the notes and they don't say the right things in the correct order, like the note has to say this complaint before the first sleep study mm -hmm. and then say, then the whole thing is rejected, right? Yeah. And the doc that order that doesn't even understand that. They're mm -hmm. like trying to help the patient. They're like some random primary care physician or something. They have no idea about the system. I see cardiologists all the time trying to order and it just doesn't get approved because they don't understand the rules with insurance. Mm -hmm. And we do and by the way, the rules change multiple times a year by all the different insurance companies, and they all have different rules. So I know it because I specialize, right? So you can imagine doctors that don't specialize in it, they, they can't even help their patients, and they don't know what's going on. And they don't have the office staff. Like, we have office staff just dedicated to dealing with insurance. Then we have right. office staff just dedicated to dealing with the supplier company, right? It's such a complicated system that depends on so many different factors and that's what makes it so hard right yeah you have to feed the uh the office staff to deal with the insurance like raw meat to keep them like you know in, in, i'm just teasing they have no, to deal it's, with the insurance. It's, it's horrible <laughs> but i mean other practices are like that too right they have people just yeah, dealing with yeah. insurance. it's a, i mean insurance companies are doing this right it, it's like an entire job in every practice just to deal with insurance companies and it's totally unique to what specialty you're in what type of insurance right. issues they have to know about, right? What's um if, if you were a self-pay, how much uh, would a CPAP, a sleep study and a CPAP and doctor's visit run versus uh, like a BiPAP or like top of the line type thing? Sure. So the 
study out of pocket, you know, varies from lab to lab. So it's different, by the way, and the quality of labs are, are different. I've worked at Stanford lab, I've worked at UCLA, I've worked here. So I've seen different labs. Um, usually it's a couple thousand for an in-lab study. Um, the reason being is all the equipment, you know, needs to be replaced. You have a technician there with you live all night. Um, that's, that, that is expensive, right? It's not my interpreting fee. My interpreting fee is like nothing, right? It's the actual doing the sleep study. So that's a couple right. thousand. I don't know. I don't even know here what our out of pay. They don't even tell me. I don't know what an out of pocket appointment is like um, at our at our clinic. I don't imagine it's that expensive. The actual treatment, the device, for example, a CPAP is not very expensive out of pocket. Um, it's it's not what people think. It's like six hundred to seven hundred dollars for a top of the line device. The device in and of itself isn't that expensive. What's expensive is the replacement. So a device isn't meant to last that long. The base of it is with the motor that pushes out the air, but for example, Medicare, which is like the worst insurance, right, as, as far as coverage goes, replaces the tube that comes out of the device connected to the mask every six months. They replace the humidifier chamber every six months. They replace the cushions of the mask every three months, the headgear straps every six months, the filters every month. All this stuff is being covered by your insurance and you're constantly being nailed refilled. So this equipment, the silicone, the different pieces are not meant to be durable for super long periods and they become dirty too, even if you clean them, which we're supposed to do. Right. So that part becomes expensive. I hate seeing patients paying for their refills out of pocket when it's covered by your insurance because it doesn't need to be paid for is the whole point. But the whole point that patients try to just pay for it on CPAP.com and stuff on their own is to cut out, you know, needing to see the doctor to get refills, which they should be doing anyways, by the way, to be checking, you know, the equipment and stuff and making sure it's up to date and it's working appropriately and it's set appropriately. Yeah. Is, is is there any dependency that gets established, a physiological dependency, when you're using a CPAP? No. You know, I've, I don't know if there's like no, urban legends that you hear about. Yeah, no, I get asked that question. Yeah, no. It, you, when, you, when, you, when you don't sleep with the machine, your baseline sleep does not get worse. Your baseline, baseline breathing does not get worse. Because all the device is doing is just acting as an air splint. It's like a really strong hair dryer blowing into your nose to blow open the air tubes. That's it, right? So it doesn't weaken... Because the, the, the issue is not at the level of the lungs. The issue is, you know, the, the air tube, the upper airway collapsing. So you're just blowing it open to its normal patency. That's all you're doing. Has anyone ever tried to, um, I don't know, make a device that works just like a CPAP that blows air into you with the intent of trying to strengthen the muscles of your throat and nose and all that? Is there any way to do that with air? Work them out? Yeah. Like do a treatment not like that? Air. Not with air. Um so there have been studies and still some people believe in it, some people don't. So the idea of strength in these muscles is, is by the way, a hot topic. Like at our last annual sleep conference, they're looking at medications that can try to target these muscles and strengthen them. Um, but like a, like a pill you could take to help with that. Um, that's, there's active research in that. Um, separate from that, there are studies done that people pass playing the didgeridoo every day. You know the didgeridoo? <laughs> Yep, that yep. long thing that you blow into, that doing that every day can really strengthen those muscles, keep the airway more open when you're sleeping. There are some studies showing that. It, it It's just, it depends on your degree of sleep apnea. Someone is fully collapsing 100 times per hour and they've developed, you know, stroke, heart failure and all this, like playing the didgeridoo every day is not likely going to be adequate to strengthen the muscles enough, right? But there are studies showing that it can reduce the degree of sleep apnea potentially with regular usage. Um, and in children, there's something called myofunctional therapy. And there are actual specialists in this that you can go see, a myofunctional therapist, to give you different 
muscle exercises to do with your mouth and tongue um, to strengthen these muscles. It's just hard in children to force them to do these exercises every day and name them. Um, it's pretty tricky. And then yeah. we would have to really see that the data makes a dent in the patient's degree of sleep apnea. So myofunctional therapy is usually focused mostly on children now and strengthening the muscles when children do them. Why can't adults do myofunctional therapy? I just don't know if it's going to be as effective that later in, in life to strengthen the muscles. Uh-huh. But the, the, the research has more been in what's effectively happening is more in the pediatric population. Um, uh-huh. And not many you know sleep doctors believe in it as much, but it's an idea. Um, there are online different videos and stuff you can do for myofunctional therapy. But again, like I said, it's hard to force the kids to do it and for them to keep up with it. That was my issue with why I didn't recommend it as much because realistically it was hard to to implement in the long term. I told my kids about it. They go, we need breathing lessons. And they were teasing me. So yeah, I understand. <laughs> yeah. The reality of it. <laughs> well, very good. I but mean, I got but- a lot of it's, it's interesting. Sorry to cut you off, but the thing is, really interesting stuff, right? Because everyone wants a pill instead yeah. of yeah, right. True. So what we're we're working on is targeting those muscles that are involved in that hypoglossal nerve. You know, the one for that stimulator that we were talking about, right? And finding medications that can specifically target those muscles to keep the airway patent. It's very interesting stuff, actually. So um, there's a lot of research. Okay. Well, this was a good call. I mean, I learned a lot of nuances I haven't heard from a lot of people. So I can tell that you're really into this and that, uh, you know, I'm just postulating. But I think that uh, if people contact you, they're likely to get a, a really high level of care and attention. So that's great. Um, I hope. Thank how you. Can, I hope so. Yeah. How, how can people contact your office, you know, whether they're local or not local? I don't know if you do telemedicine, but, uh, what you know, what's some contact info for you? Yeah. So I am at the NYU Comprehensive Epilepsy Center Sleep Center. Um, so basically, we also serve patients with seizures and all that. And so we can do combined sleep studies with seizures. That's why I'm part of the epilepsy group. Um, the phone number is 929-455-2323. And we're on 724 Second Avenue in New York. So for those people that kind of know New York, it's in the kind of midtown area. Mm. Okay. Well, very good. Well, I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been good. Sure, no problem. Hope people learn from it. <laughs> and you did too. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. 
you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.